Good morning, everyone. A pleasure to worship the Lord together. We do have uh, communion following the service, so if you're a born-again follower of Jesus, you are welcome and invited and encouraged to come up and receive of the cup and the bread, and we'll, um, the way we do that is we'll have a song at the end, and you'll come up and take of the, the elements, and then I will lead us all in a prayer so we can take, partake together. Just a great way to obey our Savior and to proclaim his death till he comes. I mean, how awesome what he has done for us and that he's with us, that he is in our hearts, he's in this place and he guides us and how privileged we are to have, have a God who loves us and provides for all of our needs and we, we get to talk about him, we get to live for him and, and he takes pleasure in his people. So what an awesome God. Uh, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are over all, that you are sovereign, you are holy, you are true, and we love you. Thank you for revealing yourself to us and opening our eyes to see how glorious you are, and, and even still, we only see the edges of your ways, and you are that much more glorious, eternally awesome. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see how good you are, and to see the good of God in the land of the living that you would help us to see your hand at work in our lives, the way that you're speaking to us and, and helping us, the way that you've provided. And may we glorify you for that. May we look to you for the future and rejoice in the difference that you've made in our lives and that you use us to make a difference in the lives in this world and that others too would come to, to know you, to be brought out of darkness and into light, to be free of the power of Satan and to rejoice in the glory of God. And so we, we commit this time to you, Lord, and ask that you would speak to our hearts through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. The life of one person makes a big difference. Um, who here has seen the movie, It's a Wonderful Life? A, a classic movie. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, it follows the life of a man named George Bailey. He never got to do the things he dreamed of, like traveling or doing something big or important. Uh, he just worked at his family's business and then his dad passed away suddenly. He got married, he had children, he, there was an absent-minded employee, a unethical business rival. It brought him to his knees and he is irrationally thinking about ending his life and he's given the opportunity to look back at the world without him. So how life would have been if he had never existed and he was shocked when he saw the just really the squalor of the town and, and uh, people that weren't around that, that he expected to be there and, and he just cried out, I want to live again, I want to live. And he, the, the film ends, he doesn't get to travel to exotic locations, but he has all his friends around him and he just comes to the conclusion like, yeah, um, the one who has friends is not a failure. And that, that movie, it's, it's a feel-good movie, but it pales in comparison to the difference that Jesus Christ has made in our lives and in the world. I mean, how would this world or your life be different if Jesus never existed? It's impossible to fathom because he has, he is our life. He is everything for us. If Jesus never lived, if he never invited us to fellowship and friendship with God, if we were still burdened by our sin, if we had no hope beyond this life, perish the thought. But praise the Lord, Jesus has come. He does live. 
And we've all, in, we've all experienced personally the difference that the introduction of one life into your life can make a big difference, like the addition of a child to a family or a, or a pet, a family pet. Uh, that fussy baby or barking puppy, it can disrupt sleep for the people in that house. Makes a very little impact, though, down the road, usually, unless your baby's really loud. Um, but Jesus, he came into the world as a baby, and the Son of God would grow to destroy the power of sin, of Satan, overturn death for all who trust him in the whole world. Like he made a global and eternal impact. And because he lives, we live. We live through him. I mean, what a difference a life makes, the life of Jesus. And we see that the life of Joseph when Jacob was convinced that his son Joseph was alive, his life changed because he packed up where he lived in Canaan and he went to visit his son in Egypt. Knowing Jesus lives, that he is our life, we too are changed. It's to change the way we live daily, the way we think, the way we deal with struggles and anxiety. We look to him and it prompts us to obey him. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 46. Starting in verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I also will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Jacob's sons had come home and said, Joseph's alive. And here are the carts that, the, uh, that Pharaoh has sent to cart you all back to visit him. And Jacob chose, to, he, he was convinced and he chose to go. He packed up everything and he went on this journey without any left nobody or anything behind and this is a huge step of faith because God had given him this land. He, it was land given to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and he stayed in that land. And it's kind of like leaving your house, leaving everything behind without a title deed, with there's no doors or no locks, and just saying, okay, I'm trusting you that this is going to be okay. And that even if other people choose to take up residence here, it's still the land that God's given us. Now, Beersheba was significant because years prior, there was a famine. Isaac was thinking about going, up to Egypt, going down to Egypt, but God said, do not go to Egypt. And God met him in Beersheba. And it says when he arrived there in Genesis 26, 24, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant, Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. And he pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. It's quite a similar experience to what Jacob had years later. So God had told Isaac, don't be afraid. I'm with you. I'm going to multiply your descendants. And at the time, he only had two sons. He had Esau and Jacob. And like his father before him, Jacob, he offered sacrifices to the Lord and sought him. And in a night vision, God said, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. I'm going to make of you a great nation there. I'm going to go with you and I'll bring you up again. 
And this was some 215 years after God had told Abraham in Genesis 15, 13. Then he said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So Abraham, he had one son of promise, Isaac. Through Jacob's line, we'll see it expanded to 70 at that time. And you wonder, well, why did God tell Jacob not to be afraid? Hint, because he was afraid. There were a lot of anxieties. There were a lot of concerns that he had. He had a big household. He had large holdings of land. He had a lot of um, flocks and herds. He was advanced in age. It was a long journey. They're leaving the land where God had, that God had given them. And he's thinking like, will my children forget the covenant? Will I ever come back here? Will my family return to Canaan after I'm gone? And the Lord encouraged Jacob. He says, I'm going to be with you. I'll make of you a great nation. It's, it's crazy to think that of one person, a nation could come. It says in Isaiah 60 verse 22, a little one shall become a thousand and a small one, a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. That's wild, right? To think, when you think about that, like one little baby, from that little baby, there will be a nation of people. You know, I look at a baby, it just doesn't seem possible. I'm like, I couldn't tell you anything about the future of that baby or that in time. But, but see, I'm limited by time. I'm limited by my own understanding. What's just right in front of me. I have short-sighted human weakness. I look at a baby and go, oh, it's so cute. But I don't think about that it could become a nation someday because God is awesome. We also have a short attention span. We also can't speed up time. Like you can't speed along the, the growth of a child in the womb of its mother or wheat that's sown into the ground. There's a process of time and seasons that must take place, but it says the Lord will hasten it in its time. So 215 years, you go from one man, Abraham, to 70, but by the time they left Egypt, two, 400 years later, there would be 600,000 men plus women and children. You're like, wow, God is able to do what we could not believe was possible. For a long time, it may seem like nothing's happening, but know that when God says so, new life and multiplication is possible. Jesus said this before his crucifixion in John chapter 12, 24. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Heads of grain have 30 to 50 little seeds in each one. And as long as it's green and growing, there's no more wheat that's going to grow. But as soon as it's, it dies and is dried and all those little seeds are planted, you have this multiplication of grain. And Jesus knew that he was going to the cross, that he was going to die for the sins of the world. And it would, him dying, one person dying, would yield a incredible harvest of souls people that were redeemed and born again. And many of the people who talked to Jesus, they would lose their lives for their testimony of Christ. 
because they placed their faith in him. And we too can receive eternal life. So the line didn't end with Jesus. There was great fruit that came from his sacrifice. And we are um, evidence of that. Praise the Lord. And then God told Jacob, Jacob, and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. This is really comforting and very ironic. Jacob had thought Joseph was dead. It turned out Joseph was alive. And he's saying, your son is going to be with you when you die. When you die, he will close your eyes. He will put your hand on your eyes. He will be there. You will be with him at the end. And for decades, maybe Jacob had wished he had been with Joseph in his last moments to comfort him with his presence. But it was Joseph who God would give him to provide comfort in his final hours. This is not a great comfort as knowing God is with you and will bring you back. He says, I'll bring you back to Canaan. But it was certainly encouraging. Picking up in verse 5. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones and their wives in the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan and went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his son's sons, his daughters and his son's daughters and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. So in obedience to the Lord who had spoken to him, by faith in him, Jacob goes to Egypt and he passes through Beersheba and they're all riding along in these carts that Pharaoh had sent for them. They took all their herds, flocks, and goods that he had acquired in Canaan and they went. Now, when it comes to investing, we know that it's wise to have a diverse portfolio. You don't put all of your money in one place. So if that one place fails, you don't lose everything, right? You, you diversify, you split up your investments. But Jacob doesn't do that when it comes to obedience to God. He puts all in, to use a poker phrase. He goes all in to say, I am completely trusting God to preserve me and my things and my family that he is going to fulfill his word. And as a patriarch, it was his responsibility to lead his family, to guide them. And he led by example in following God because it wasn't just Joseph's invitation that he responded to, but the fact God met with him, God spoke with him, and God, ex God told him to go. And so he was not afraid to go, and he just went with everything. It's like he left Canaan without a trace. He didn't know how. He didn't know when he was going to come back, but he went. Now, once we're convinced of God's direction to do something or go somewhere, we should follow Jacob's example of obedience and not procrastinate until we have a backup plan or God answers all of our questions before we take the first step. His, his plan was to obey today. God told them to go, and so he says, we're doing it. We're, all, we're gathering up everything. Sometimes we are unwilling to trust or obey God until we know how it's going to turn out. Like if I agree with the, with the direction this is going or the outcome that I want, then I will say yes. But Jacob doesn't do that. He goes by faith. He trusts that God is directing him. He has confirmed it with his promises. And we can know that too through God's word, through the way he speaks to us. And sometimes we can care more about outcomes than wanting to please God. Can you see that in your own life? 
Like we care more about an outcome that we want to come about rather than seeing as our primary aim is to please God and to glorify him. So uh, let me encourage you. Don't ever allow what you don't know or what you can't understand keep you from trusting in, looking to, and obeying God who knows you. Trust him. Follow him. When we have knowledge, knowledge is good, but knowledge mixed with pride, it leads to distrust. It leads to self-reliance, but knowledge of God with humility, it leads to submission. Rest and peace with God, even in troubling times. So it's by faith in God we are wisely led, and we can walk knowing that he is with us, he will help us. Do you trust God to keep his word? Sometimes we can put other people's word on the level with God's word, and we ought never do that. It is God's word that we follow. It's him that we trust. But if you do trust someone to keep your, their word, you won't ma- micromanage or badger them. I had a great example of this years ago uh, in the States. I had a dead battery, Laura's car. I, I removed the battery, took it to the shop, and it was uh, pretty grubby. It was dated, you know, carpet on the floor, and the dog sleeping there in his spot. But I had heard about this place. They were selling the kind of batteries I want. I wanted an interstate battery. So I went in, and uh, the guy's like, yep, I have the battery, no problem. Oh, but I only take check or cash. And I'm like, all I've got is a credit card. He's like, not a problem. You just take the battery. I'll recycle the old one. You can just put a check in the mail. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, just send me a check. I, I trust you. So we shook hands, we looked each other in the eye, and my word was my bond. And as I left with this brand new battery, I'm like, how does this guy stay in business? Like if he's just giving somebody, like he didn't ask me my name, he didn't get my details, he just gave me his business card and says, yeah, just put the check in the mail. I trust you. It's like he didn't ask, when are you going to pay? Do you actually have the money? Here, sign this form, leave this collateral. Nothing. Nothing. And then I thought, that's exactly why this guy has a profitable business, because he's the kind of person who keeps his word. If there's a problem with the battery, you know he's going to make it right, even if it costs him. So if I ever needed a battery, that's where I was going. Now think about what God has freely given us. He's freely given us his presence, his spirit, these promises And then we can see how he's always cared for us. He's always provided it for us. And we can try to micromanage him. We can make him, we we like want him to answer our questions before we'll obey him. And that just shows we're not trusting him like we should. So God comes to us. He has spoken. And we ought not require payment up front before we will obey. But let's obey, trusting That in due time, he will make it good and go all in with obedience. Genesis 46, verse 8. Now these were the names of the children of Israel, Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. The sons of Reuben were Hanuk, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. 
The sons of Judah were Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar were Tola, Puvah, Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun were Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These were the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paddan Aram with his daughter Dinah. All the persons, his sons and daughters, were 33. So now we're given a list of all of Jacob's sons and grandsons. What's not mentioned in this list is, are his wife's sons, uh, his wife's, excuse me, his son's wives and their daughters. There's two women that will be listed in this because uh, they were direct. But in keeping with the other genealogies in Genesis, they are not exhaustive. They don't include every single name of every person. We also know that they had a lot of servants, right? Abraham had servants, Isaac, and Jacob that had um, husbands and wives and children. They're not listed here. But the Bible focuses on those that would come, the Messiah would come through. And we see that comes through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. And we see all these uh, men listed here. We'll see that in Matthew 1, it follows the genealogy from Abraham to Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Luke 3, it follows Mary's genealogy or Joseph as a son-in-law all the way back to Adam. And the awesome thing is that Jesus, though he was never married and never had a child, his line did not end because here we are, born again, born again by faith in him. And so he has um, descendants as many as the sand of the sea, adopted into the family of God. Now, I feel it's significant that the royal line of Judah would come through Leah. She was Joseph, Jacob's first wife, a woman who was unloved. Remember that Jacob was tricked into marrying uh, Leah because he had worked seven years for Rachel. And on their wedding day, Laban pulled the old switcheroo and they were all veiled. So Leah was veiled and he thought she was Rachel. And so the next day he's like, hey, you, you tricked. Why did you deceive me? Why did you lie to me? And, he's, and it was all because he wanted to get another seven years of work out of him. He's like, work another seven years for me and then you can have Rachel as well. Though unloved, God was pleased to provide a savior through Leah who would demonstrate God's love to all people so that all people would know his love through Jesus, Jew and Gentile, because he would go to, a cro to the cross as a sacrifice for sin. And I love how God's love, it exceeds the scope of our love. Our love is limited, but God's love, it's extended to all and for all time. And we get to be the recipients and the givers of that love by his grace. Picking up in verse 16. The sons of Gad were Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Areli. The sons of Asher were Jimna, Ishua, Isui, Bariah, and Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Bariah were Heber and Machaliel. Malkiel, sorry. These are the sons of Zilpah whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, were Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. 
The sons of Benjamin were Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Muppim, Huppim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. So now we see the sons of Zilpah. That was Leah's maid she gave to Jacob as wife in the height of the Leah and Rachel childbearing competition where they were trying to one-up each other by having more kids. And when Leah wasn't having any, she's like, well, you can have Zilpah as wife. And as we read these names, they have little significance to us. Um, Knowing each of these is fashioned by God and known by him is significant. But I, I dare say, this would not be dull reading at all if you chance to find the name of your ancestor here. If you could say, I am a direct descendant of this person. Pretty cool. It might be a passage that you'd flip to during a Bible study or a discussion with someone and saying, yeah, I can trace my lineage all the way back to this person. That would be pretty neat. And uh, we're all related to Adam and Noah, but how amazing to know that you were related to Muppim or Huppim <laughs> or Ard. <laughs> Let's just put that one in there as well. Uh, recently, Laura and I went to a graduation for Abel and there was a booklet and it was full of names. And the, the names, I didn't know anyone. <laughs> like they were not of any significance to me, but I was really pleased to find Abel's name among them. Uh, now let's take it further. What if that was your name? What if you found your name written in God's book, in his word? It would be amazing out of all the people who lived at that time that there would be just 70 people listed and your name would be listed among them. A very select list. It reminds me when I tried out for baseball, my year 10, uh, year 10 baseball season, and uh, I had played the previous year, so I'm like, I've got a good chance. And uh, 60 people vying for 15 pot spots, and you basically show up at school, and you look at the list, and I looked at the list again and again, not there. I guess I didn't make the team. Took me a couple days, but I got over it. Now, the Bible speaks eight times of the Lamb's book of life that no one who's omitted from will ever get over. Revelation 21, 25 says, speaking of heaven, its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So it's like the gates of heaven, they're always open. Where Jesus is dwelling in glory forever. But not everyone is able or allowed to enter there. The only way you can is if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Your name must be written there or you are denied entry. If you want access to the presence of God forever, it's only through Jesus Christ and faith in him. And then your name is written in his book. And that's the only way, by new birth. That's how your name is written. It, it would be a minor inconvenience. You go to vote and they scan and try to find your name and they say, what's your, your, uh, your name? And you tell them and they're like, oh, I, I just don't see it here. Like, well, it should be there. You know, I registered to vote and this is where I came last time and oh, you're gonna have to go somewhere else. All right, that would be a bit of a, a time waster. But can you imagine a major catastrophe beyond comprehension, that your name has been blotted out of the book. It's no longer written there. 
Revelation 20, 15, it says, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So not only denial from entering the kingdom of God, but being cast into the lake of fire to be tormented forever because you have rejected Jesus Christ and have died in your sins. In Australia, when you pass away, your name is removed from the voting registry. Jesus gives assurance that he will not blot out the names of those who are born again and follow him in Revelation 3, 5. It says, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. It's Jesus who gives us entry to heaven. He is the way, the truth, and the life. It's not our sin that blots out our name, but it's unbelief refusing to trust in Christ who gives eternal life. Genesis 46, 23. Pick up our passage. It says, The son of Dan was Hushim. The sons of Naphtali were Jazil, Guni, Jezer, and Shalem. The name, these were the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and she bore these to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body, besides Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob, who went to Egypt, were 70. So finally, we've come to the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid that she gave to Jacob as wife. And all the sons and grandsons, including the two daughters listed, numbered 30. So from the body of Jacob, we have 70 that went into Egypt, and they would come out a great nation. God would allow the Hebrews to be oppressed and enslaved for centuries, yet God was with them. He caused them to flourish, and he brought them out with a mighty hand. It's unprecedented that you would have a nation born out of another nation and out of such suffering that has endured to this day. Because the living God has kept his covenant with them. Nations rose to prominence and have disappeared without a trace. And yet Israel remains. God has preserved and provided for his people. And Jacob could go to Egypt. Not knowing what the future held. But knowing God. Knowing that God was with him. And we can too. We can go into an uncertain future. Knowing that God is with us and he will help us. Sometimes I feel something akin to disgust when believers lament the problems of this world as those without hope or are afraid for the future of the church when Jesus is our head and he's alive. It's like, do we trust God or not? Do we trust Christ to keep his body whole and healthy or will we give place to fear and doubt? Let's trust him. Let's obey him. Verse 28. Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him all the way the way to Goshen, and they came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face because you are still alive. So as they're going, Jacob sends Judah to go uh, guide them to the right place in the land of Goshen. And I love the thought of previously when his brothers had come, Jake, 
Joseph had always spoken through an interpreter. He was always, you know, not, he was untouchable by them. But now there's no need for an interpreter. They're able to just talk freely. They embrace one another. And then he drops everything to take his chariot out to Goshen to meet with his dad. And it was a very emotional reunion. They were weeping. It says he embraced him and wept over him for a good while. And we see such a change here in Israel. Because remember when Benjamin was required to go to Egypt? And he said, all these things are against me. You know, Simeon's in prison. Joseph is gone. And now you want to take Benjamin from me. Everything's against me. But now he's like, I can die because I've seen you face to face. I know you're alive. When Jacob trusted God to go down to Egypt, he was blessed by meeting his son in person. And he says, I could die right now seeing you face to face. And the idea is, is when you've experienced great pleasure and bliss, uh, paradise, we feel life on earth could not be any better. And we're like, I'm ready to leave. I've had, I've had the best experience I could possibly ever have. And I'm happy to go. It's not saying you want to die. It's just saying you'd be happy to. And you're so pleased that even the thought of dying doesn't trouble you one bit because you're just so happy. So the impact that Joseph's life on Jacob made all his troubles fade. And for that moment, because these feelings are fleeting, he's like, I could die. It's so good to see you alive. Now, one wonder of being born again is we have the opportunity to meet our savior Jesus by faith and obedience to him. We get to have fellowship with him. He died to make a personal relationship possible with us so we could see him face to face. And for every time that I felt life could not get any better, I have also felt, could life get any worse? I've had both of those thoughts. Our feelings are fickle, but fellowship with God through faith, it's the best gift God has given us himself that we can have friendship with God. We have access and it's something we can take for granted because we have it. We don't appreciate it as much as we ought because that love, it kind of just, we don't always receive it. It bounces off us. It goes over our heads. We don't, we don't really appropriate the fact that he loves us the way he does. There was a huge difference between Jacob believing his son was alive and going to Egypt and embracing him face to face, right? There's a big difference. He intellectually agreed, I am convinced my son is alive. But what if he stayed in Canaan? He would never have seen him again. But he went in obedience to God and he has this great blessing to be reunited with his son who was indeed alive. And it's when we obey Jesus that we're led into real fellowship with him. A closeness that we never had just intellectually knowing that Jesus came and knowing that he rose from the dead. It becomes very real when he wraps his arms around us when, when we obey him. When he is pleased by us and says, well done, good and faithful servant. And we don't need to wait till heaven to have that. We can have that today as we do his will, as we follow him as we trust him. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 9. And the context of that 
passage, it's like saying, instead of being offended or being stumbled at identifying as a sinner, being disobedient to the word of God, because we believe Jesus is precious, we obey him. That's just summarizing some of the previous words there. And of born again believers, Peter writes this in 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So in this passage, we see that as followers of Jesus, we are chosen. We're spiritual royalty by new birth. We're holy. We've been set apart unto God, his own special people. And what is the fitting response? To praise him, to proclaim him, the one who's brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So as a group, we have different backgrounds. We have different ethnicities, different ages, different families. But God has called us all to be his people, all one, united in him. We were once without mercy, but now we've all obtained mercy. Think of Jacob being invited to live in Egypt during the midst of a famine where there was food, where his son ruled, and, and because Jesus rules, we've been made citizens of heaven. We've been born again by faith in Christ who's with us. And though we fail to live up to his standard, he's extended grace and his presence to us. And we don't need to wait until heaven to be overwhelmed with the goodness and love of God towards us. We can weep, we can shout for joy over our Savior today because he's done everything for us and he's with us. And when we look upon our crucified Lord and we follow him in obedience, we celebrate Jesus who is our life. We proclaim him and we, we can say, now I can die happy knowing we never will because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. It's one thing to have that feeling or that expression about things that go well in this world. But what about, I mean, with Jesus, it never goes bad. He is always good. Jesus will put his hand on your eyes and he will open them again in his presence forever. What comfort there is for us. Today, we remember and proclaim the death of our savior until he comes and his death was a proclamation of his love, a demonstration of his love for us. And I love that we all will partake of the same cup and the same bread. It's not like if you're on a plane and you have different levels of, of food depending on where you're sitting or things that you are, have access to. If you're in first class or business class or economy or, uh, you know, you, you, you actually don't even get food because you're not, you're not at that status, right? But we all partake of the same thing because we have one Savior. We have one Lord who's united us, who has made us born again through faith in him. And so we remember Jesus going to the cross, how his body was broken so we could be made whole, how his blood was shed so we could have atonement for our sins, so the Holy Spirit could be poured out upon us in fullness and we could know him. He died and rose from the dead so that we can live with him forever. And we have this great uh, 
legacy, present and future because of Jesus and all he does for us. He was afflicted. He was wounded. And by his stripes, we are healed. And his life has made an eternity of difference in our lives. And so let's remember him, knowing that we have fellowship with him right now. The living God. Praise him forever. Let me invite the worship team forward to lead us in a song as we uh, seek the Lord, as we humble our hearts before him. And then we will, I invite you guys to come up to receive of these and then I'll, I'll just lead us in a prayer after. And let's pray. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to be our Savior, for giving us new life through him. And I mean, it would be, it would be an amazing thing to, to be reunited with uh, a lost family member after 20 years. And Lord, some of us, we have, we have also been away from you. And thank you for drawing near to us, for calling our names. Like the good shepherd pursuing those lost, wandering sheep, Lord, you have come to us and you have lifted us up. And, and sometimes, Lord, we have wandered from faith in you. We have forgotten the goodness that you have extended to us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would draw near to you now. We would humble ourselves before you in faith and repentance and receive your word today. That we would, if we're not yet born again, today would be the day we surrender our souls to you and that you would redeem, you would restore, you would revive. And Lord, for us who know you, I pray that we would come into a deeper knowledge of you and we would do so through obedience and, and f- taking steps of faith without Um, I guess micromanaging you or thinking that we know better than you, but to trust you and to submit to you and to give ourselves to you as living sacrifices. We thank you for the the sacrifice that Jesus uh, provided on Calvary, how his blood has washed away our sin, how he has risen to new life and given us life through him and the Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that we would remember and proclaim your death till you come and thank you that you are coming and uh, we want to be ready. Thank you for writing our names in your book of life and I pray that we would walk worthy uh, to be numbered among your people by grace. And I thank you, Lord, for this time and this opportunity to humble our hearts before you and to receive communion together. In Jesus' name, amen.